to work hard, spread lace to you, I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name's Nabila, I'm Young Labour's Chair, and I'm really pleased to welcome you all to this important event tonight as part of Arise 2023, an online festival of Labour's left ideas. So the discussion we're having tonight is an essential one, and it's titled The Case for Labour Party Democracy, The Members' Rights and the Union Link. As many of you will be aware, we are here tonight to say we must stand up for Labour Party democracy especially in light of growing concerns across our movement and beyond about the attack on members' rights, as illustrated by the blocking of Jamie Driscoll, who we will have joining us tonight. We believe in the democratic rights of all constituency parties to choose their prospective parliamentary candidates and other candidates. And it is up to us, and to all of us collectively, to make the case for a democratic party and movement to map out next steps in campaigning for members' rights and in defence of the trade union link. Indeed, when Labour's leadership railroaded through the motion, blocking his link to North from choosing who their MP candidate will be, it did not do so without widespread opposition, including from numerous affiliated unions who voted against the motion. This included Unite, CWU, ASLEF, FBU and the TSSA, and Unison abstained. This response is illustrative of the grave concerns that are growing across the trade unions and our movement as a whole, and the continual attacks on democracy in Labour. Now, it isn't enough to just oppose these attacks. On the left and beyond, we need to work together much more consciously, proactively and cooperatively to present a unified response. And that's why today we've taken this initiative to bring together different parts of the left for an important discussion. We need to stand for democracy and self-organisation for our women's, BAME, LGBTQ, disabled and youth sections. And I'm also pleased to have Disability Labour and others with us today who can address these key issues. As we go through the event, please do donate if you can and buy a ticket for the whole of the festival using the links posted in the chat if you're able to. Um, And please keep an eye out for any of the action notes that will be posted by our volunteers. Without your support, we couldn't host these brilliant events. And as we move on to our speakers, please not only tell us where you are tuning in from in the Q&A box, but also give us your comments so they can be shared throughout the audience and the speakers. Now, due to an amazing level of interest, um, as well as on the Zoom webinar, we're also streaming live direct from the Arise YouTube page and over a dozen Facebook pages. So as the event goes on, please post your questions in the Q&A section on Zoom. And if we have some time at the end, we'll try and put some to our panel. So our panelists tonight are as follows. We have Jamie Driscoll, Cathy Bowl, Mick Whelan, Simon Fletcher, Rachel Garnham and John Trickadempe. And I'm really pleased to welcome our first speaker, Jamie Driscoll, needs no introduction but yet I have to say as the Lord uh, as the Labour Metro Mayor for North of Tyne 
Amongst his many achievements, he's also won incredible devolution powers for his region, and he's been a key example of what a Green New Deal actually looks like in practice. Um, I've had the absolute privilege of meeting Jamie, and you know, as well as Jay- hearing a bit about the work that Jamie's been doing in the region from the other members of the Northeast, um, you know, Jamie was one of the people who just sort of came to an event that I was speaking at and sat at the back and really listened. And to be honest, you don't have many politicians who are willing to do that. Um, and it was just an absolute privilege to to speak with Jamie about the work he was doing. So I'm really, really pleased to to welcome Jamie Driscoll onto this call. Oh, thanks, Nabila. You, you're going to make me blush. This, um, obviously, it's titled about democracy, but this is not just about democracy. It's about voices. Whose voices are heard? and whose voices are silenced. If you're a corporate donor now, you get a voice. If you're an American healthcare company donating to the Labour Party, you get a voice. If you're willing to pay £150 a ticket to go and uh, sit on a table with Peter Mandelson, you get a voice. But if you're a minimum wage worker in the North East, you don't get a voice. If you're someone who's struggling to get into work or, or struggling to get by on universal credit because you have a disability, you don't get a voice. And I stand on the picket lines and have stood on the picket lines with all the unions in dispute to try and amplify their voice using my elected office. Let's have a look at what happened all over the news. Um, But on Wednesday night, a week gone, um, the north of Tyne is going to be expanding and bringing in areas from the south of Tyne to create a new mayoral combined authority over and above the one that I've led for the last four years. And I went down to Treasury four years ago uh, and three years ago and started negotiating to get that money for us. And it's billions and it make a difference. So um, I applied. Uh, and by the way, you would think as an MP, you would automatically be on. But as a mayor, no to go through the process like everyone else. But I'm a fan of open selections. So I didn't mind that. And then this thing comes through. We want to interview you, due diligence panel, on the Wednesday night that that comes through. Interview on the Thursday night. that obviously made the decision late on Friday night. Comes through this email saying, thank you for applying. You have been unsuccessful. That's it. No, exclamation, no explanation. This is a pattern of behaviour. I've been asking for the data to contact members now for, since June 2020. This is over three years ago, and you automatically allowed it as a mayor to contact members. But there was excuse after excuse given. In January this year, I got a, an email from the regional director saying, you can only have access to contact members directly if you promise you will not run as a candidate in the future selection. Now, what's that if it's not a pattern of behaviour to try and exclude people? I asked the interview panel, I says, is there, is there any disciplinary issue here? There's no, no, no disciplinary. And I said, by the way, it's not your competence either. Even they acknowledge I'm good at my job. And so I said, is this anything to do with anti-Semitism? No, no, we're not making any accusations of anti-Semitism. It's just about political judgment. Would you help us win an election? All right. So I had that interview. Then I get this email saying, you're not allowed to run. And then they start briefing. The same people who haven't briefed any of the good work I've done. Start briefing especially sat on a panel with Ken Loach. And um, that, that line changed, by the way, when I pointed out uh, on the BBC that Keir Starmer has also sat on a panel with Ken Loach. And Keir Starmer actually has been in a Ken Loach film, which I never have. Uh, and David Lammy has written articles praising Ken Loach's work. 
and the BBC funded Ken Loach's recent film. So that's now actually disappeared from it. For the record, by the way, Ken Loach is not anti-Semitic and he was not expelled from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. He was expelled for the Labour Party for challenging the process that people weren't allowed to see the evidence against them and weren't allowed rights of appeal. Basic tenets of natural justice. Ken Loach's last three feature films, though, have been set in the Northeast and have been about social justice and the integration of refugees, things that the Labour Party should be championing. Anyway, so then they shifted the argument to, oh, well, um, candidates have to be of the highest standard. Now, it was interesting that I've been praised cross-party for not playing daft political games with my office and bringing in everybody to the extent that local Tories have been on the telly saying, Jamie's good at his job. I don't know why the Labour Party's haven't going in. Independents have put motions into councils. The standard tactic of people on the left is that the establishment tries to rubbish them. They say the fringe people. They say they aren't any good in power, that they don't know what they're doing. And they've been unable to do that because I've been in power and demonstrated that track record. I've demonstrated value for money. Um, adult education enrolments, I've increased from 22,000 a year to 33,000 a year for the same budget. Now, that is better public services. When does a branch of government ever get a 50% increase in value for money? So I've done it. So no one is able to attract my record. And party members have been outraged by this. 22 constituencies in the area of this new mayoral combined authority. 11 have not nominated, despite the fact there have been threats of disciplinary action and legal cases brought against members. And of the 11 that have, there have been more walkouts, there have been um, uh, dubious situations about chairs putting through nominations when it hasn't. And in one case, uh, in time of CLP, um, a lot of the delegates were, it was on Zoom, so they, they were obviously very easy to silence. And they wore Jamie Driscoll masks, which I thought was wonderful. Um, so that's the, the, uh, the innovation of the left. And then, of course, Baroness Chapman came out on telly and said, tough, it's right that the Labour leadership gets to choose who the candidates are, and then local members can decide. But this is not about me. It's about power and who exercises. Who gets to say what is legitimate debate? And here's why. That next Labour government, and I do want rid of this venal Tory government that is brought through austerity, that's led to, to deaths from poverty, that's led to crumbling public services. We absolutely want rid of that Tory government. But the next Labour government is going to inherit a public sector that hasn't had pay rises in years, utilities that are creaming off money from our country and shipping it abroad through tax havens, a transport system that's in crisis because of underinvestment and low morale. Two years into that Labour government, if they don't fix these things, we know what's going to happen. There will be massive uprisings. And our Labour government will be very unpopular. And whoever's leader, there will be a surge in the Labour Party to say, no, we voted for a leader who actually was standing on progressive policies, and that's what we want again. So that clique in the London HQ who wants rid of people like me, I know they want rid of anyone who's a progressive voice so that we don't see the Labour Party return to that kind of leadership. And this is about devolution, because I've shown what can be done. I've got a plan in my manifesto for developing a total transport network where buses, the metro system and heavy rail are integrated with joint ticketing, with publicly owned car clubs, with active travel, that is going to be enabled to get everybody under 18 free transport, that's going to directly tackle the climate emergency. And I've been through with this with my officers and they know it can be done. I'm promising to run on a platform of full employment, 
We've already created 5,000 jobs and protected another 3,200. That's a lot of jobs. That's economic competence in action. And for the first time, there was news came out today, for the first time in recorded history, the Northeast now has below the national rate of unemployment. We're delivering this. And that makes me dangerous. So I'm going to need your help to fight this. So sign up. I'm sure that the links will be in the chat. Have a look at my website. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Sign the open letter to campaign for me. Because we face a world where if you're under 40, your chances of ever owning a home are gone. We're facing a world where there's an increasing casualization of labor, where trade union rights are being eroded, where we're seeing minimum service levels, so-called. Basically, you don't have a right to strike. And if you do strike, you can be sacked. We're seeing a climate emergency hurtling towards us like a juggernaut, which is going to leave my kids growing in a very different world from mine. And we're seeing freedom of protest eroded, where, frankly, if you look at a police officer the wrong way, you'll be able to be arrested. And the only choices on the political agenda, unless we fight this, are going to be dark money and corporate sponsors and openly saying that we're going to fund the private sector to run the NHS. And if I'm dangerous... Because I say, in power, with a record of economic competence, you know, let's look at our water industry. In the Northeast, we have Northumbria Water. They make a profit of $200 million a year that gets shipped to a Hong Kong billionaire. And at the same time, they are pumping feces and urine untreated into the water that our kids play in and swim in. And you know what? Am I the only one saying, well, should we not move that 200 million quid a year from the profit to fix that problem? And that resonates with the public. And that will start a groundswell because it's not me the fear. It's you, a confident labor movement, a confident public asking these questions. And what they want from the Labour Party is Orwellian. They want Animal Farm. They want Labour members to pop up and not say four legs good, two legs bad. They want the Labour members that are going to pop up and say four legs good, two legs better. They just want the Labour Party to be cheerleaders for corporate interests. And that's the choice. It's about a politics of democracy and debate where people of ordinary means get their voices heard through the ballot box, or it's a politics bought by the rich. And if we can show socialists in power deliver a better life, we can show it can be done in the Northeast, we can show it can be done anywhere. And that's what terrifies them. Thank you very much, Jamie, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Jamie mentioned, there are links in the chat um, where you can sign the open letter in support of Jamie, and you can also support his campaign by contributing to his campaign fund. And I just wanted to touch on something you said about, you know, the state of the world that your children will grow up in. And I think that's such an important point, because for the first time in 100 years, my generation will have worse living conditions than the generation before us. And, you know, we've, we've seen that socialists in power can make a difference. And as the left of the Labour Party, that is absolutely what we should be championing. Um, so we're really pleased that you were able to join us. Thank you. Thanks, Nabila. We now have a very quick announcement from an Arise volunteer. And so if I could just introduce Matt um, for a minute. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Um, thank you to all the other speakers coming up too. And thank you to Nabia for chairing. Um, 
as has been mentioned already, this is part of the Arise Online Festival. And I would um, urge you to grab a ticket now to help with the cost of this amazing month of events. If you haven't got one already, they start at just four pounds. But I'm mainly going to do a different kind of action point today, if you like, and that's around campaigning on party democracy. Um, many of you would have been at our Let Members Decide online event recently, which was straight from after the decision about the Eastern to North selection. Um, and you will see in the chat today that two things out of the action points from that meeting are now available. And that's what I'm urging you to do, really. One is a model motion called Let Members Decide, which you can take to your local Labour Party or CLP, but can also be amended for some trade unions, I think. And the statement accompanying it that you can sign as an individual if you're not in the Labour Party, if you don't want to take it to a meeting and so on. It is really important to actually take up these practical steps and make our voices heard. And the massive backlash over what's happened to Jamie, which we just heard about, and our petition on letting you sing to North members decide shows just how many people we can reach and agree with us on the principle of democracy in our party. Over 72,000 people have now signed the petition relating to Islington North and it continues to grow. There's also this important open letter that you can take a look at around Jamie's situation, which he has mentioned. These new Let Members Decide initiatives have been crafted in such a way to address the broad issue of democracy and members' rights in, and the union link, and to unite as many forces as we can to stand up against these anti-democratic attacks. So please do look at them and please do take them and do with them what you can. Finally, also, please do donate generously on this call if you can to our events and campaigning. Our regular programme of events cost thousands to put on throughout the year in tech costs alone. So please do give what you can. If everyone on this call donated £10, you can imagine that would make a massive difference to where we're at and enable us to keep hosting these important campaign initiatives. Please do, though, and that's the main point here. Please do support the Let Members Decide motion. Please do sign a statement and please do speak out and fight back against these stick jumps. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Our next speaker is the Chair of Disability Labour, Cathy Bowl. Hi, and thank you very much for having me come to speak to you all today. Um, I find it very frustrating. I thought we were heading in a really good direction when Jeremy took over. Um, the leadership of the party, I thought we were moving in the direction that we had all pulled for. And then I saw the evil side of politics. Now, I've never been um, a politician until I came to this country. And I stood as a counselor for two years. Um, and I saw what happens to people who are different because the level of disability discrimination I, I witnessed, not only to myself, but to others, was absolutely appalling. Um, it certainly wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be something you would do when you were a kid at home. Um, and I think that's the thing that made me want to come here today. Disabled people rank amongst the lowest uh, of the people who are available. I'm really sorry about the dog barking. I have an over-enthusiastic um, assistance dog. Anyway, the thing is that disabled people have been at the bottom 
of everybody's list as far as inclusion is concerned, taking up the campaigns for disabled people. And the thing that is so important is the fact that we, as a group of people, are almost getting to one quarter of the population of the UK. And you would think, as we grew as a group, that we would have the opportunity to push the things that we really need. But instead, we're having people being bullied. We have had people being driven out of the party in some instances. People making excuses that somebody liked something on a a Facebook page 100 years ago, and they were then expelled from the party. That is really um, frightening. I often think about the um, that poem about, you know, they came for the communists, they came for the socialists, and then they came for me, and there was no one to stand up for me. And I think disabled people feel that way. We are not the t- we're not people that. We're just like everybody else. It's just we ended up having an accident or illness. That's why you may hear um, disabled people refer, you know, between themselves refer to um, everybody who isn't disabled as temporarily able-bodied. Because the truth of the matter, and COVID showed it, that you are one illness accident away from being like many of the people in the uh, disability labor. And we just found out at our AGM that we were being granted to be the official voice of disabled members. Now, we didn't know about it. We weren't asked. And we took up the mantle and said, yeah, we'll do the best we can. But we also don't charge members for their, for their membership because many of our, our disabled members cannot afford to, I know it's cliche, but to heat and to eat. But it's worse than that. It's heat, eat and possibly not be able to charge your electric wheelchair, your home dialysis machine, your CPAP machine. Those medical pieces of equipment are the ones that are going to take your paid-for electric right, right down to zero fairly quickly. And these, in many cases, are life-saving and life-continuing vital pieces of equipment that people are not able to run. And they have to take the chance that maybe they don't um, go out because they can't charge their wheelchair because they're making sure their children have 
food to eat on the table that isn't just junk, that they are scraping by by going to food banks. And if that's happening to people who work and people who are the ones that we talk about uh, a party of working people, well, quite frankly, I've had a lot to say about that. And the fact is that it should be we are the party of people who care about people because it shouldn't matter whether you can work or not. Nobody chooses to be disabled. I know the lost voice guy always talks about he's only in it for the parking. And we can joke about things like that. But quite frankly, I'm really afraid of the numbers, again, of disabled people who are going to die cold and alone in their flats, in in the council houses. Um, how many people are going to be turfed out before uh, the government gets around to passing the uh, legislation about uh, no-fault evictions? Now, I work, I, I was able to work up until 2019, so just about the pandemic time. And I ended up being on the other end of a Section 21 eviction. And it is the scariest thing I have ever had happen to me in my life. And I did all the things that people say are the right things to do. Nobody talked about a pandemic. Nobody talked about the prices of everything going through the roof. And then I was told that I would be, you know, quite possibly out on the streets with the bailiffs at the door. And I hear from so many disabled people who have been through similar. Think about that if you have generalized anxiety disorder. It's not good for anybody's mental health. We have to bond together. We need people who are not disabled to join with disabled people to make our voices heard. Because sometimes disabled people don't have a voice at all. And We've been pushing. Now, one of the things I have to tell you about disability labor is that we don't necessarily play factional politics. Disability comes first. It doesn't matter what side of the party you were on. We're disabled first. And that has to continue. Now I have my own my own opinions. That's why I'm here. I have my own voice. But I am privileged to be able to come and speak on things like this, you know, this festival and be able to be on a panel like this with the people that have been drawn to speak to you tonight.
we need each other. We need to grow that feeling that we had when we were all bonding together. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think disabled people need anybody going out and clapping out on the roadside, but we do need to have numbers of people showing their displeasure that being disabled doesn't do much for you in the Labor Party. And I'm afraid to say that. I mean, we've been working really hard and there are MPs that are working with us um, and talking with us, but it's just talking. And I'm tired of talking, but I will continue to do so in the hopes that at some point, sometime, somebody will be listening and we will finally get equal rights with everybody else. Because I hate to say it, all protected characteristics are equal. Disability is a, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in a high-end family or somebody who's at the very lowest poverty, poverty level. Disability and illness does not discriminate. And I don't think it's fair that disabled people are being talked about as less than we are not less than we are equal to and if you want to ally yourself with us if you're not disabled you can join disability labor as a supporter i mean our members get votes, but our supporters are very, very important. So I just, you know, that's all for me. I could talk for Britain and people have would be able to stand up and tell you that's true. But thank you for having me. And let's take this on together, all of us together. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Cathy. I mean, we've all seen the dire impact Tory policies have had, um, especially on disabled people, and it's so important that the Labour Party stands for a real alternative. Uh, and we're really grateful you were able to speak with us today. We have over 400 people joining us live already um, from all across, from Aberconry to Edinburgh, Newcastle to the Isle of Wight, and even as far as Spain and Catalonia. Uh, you can share the live streams on both Twitter and Facebook and encourage more people to watch the event. Our next speaker is possibly one of my favourite speakers um, who I've had the privilege of hearing before. Um, so I'm really pleased I get to introduce him. It's the General Secretary of ASLEF, Mick Whelan. Hello, how are we? I think the last two speakers have made the crux of any argument we should make today about what the Labour Party is and what it should be. It's about the offer we make. 
But it's also about who makes that offer on our behalf. So I want to send my solidarity to Jamie Driscoll. My trade union is going to stand up and support him. We're going to argue he has a right of appeal. And we can going to argue that he should be the first person that goes further in that role. And as you heard from the last speaker, what is the Labour Party? What is it for? Are we here to articulate the voice of our class? Are we here to articulate the voice of the people who can't speak? Are we the policy party of aspiration? You know, do we want to get away from this intergenerational warfare that's been started falsely? Shouldn't everybody pay taxes have the right to a council house? Should everybody have the right to free education? Should everybody have the right to the NHS? Should everybody have the right to free social care? And if we can't deliver that immediately, how do we get there and when do we do it? And who does it now behalf? And it seems at the moment that the we are alienating our core vote. We are alienating all not only the trade unions, but many of the people that we want to get into the ballot box to get rid of these people that dominated, right, and with their economic illiteracy, who've cut councils, budgets by 60%, who've closed libraries that have hurt people, where people are afraid to turn their heating on when the winter weather, where people are starving in one sixth richest nation in the world. Right, and 1.5 million are far more worse off than that. In a world where work doesn't pay, we have to change that. Where 46% of people that are claiming universal credit are working 48 hours a week or more, that means they're either paying too much for their rent if they can get a place, or they're not being paid enough. And we are then supporting the employers rather than supporting the people of this country. And it does worry me then that how internally we go about this. So I wear many hats, not just the General Secretary of ASLEF, but also the uh, Chair of Chulo, the Affiliated Trade Unions. And on several occasions now, we have a rule book, we have a process, we have a way that we do things. And are we here then to answer to the members? Are we there then to answer the policy that's made by those members? Are we there to obviate the process that we have internally? So on at least two major occasions, stuff has come to the NEC at less than 24 hours notice. That means those affiliated trade unions, those sovereign bodies, can't go to their political subgroups or their executive committees and get their view and their voice on what we, we should or shouldn't be doing. And they've been excluded, therefore, from fully saying what they want because things are being rushed through without due consideration or due democracy. And in the case of more recently, uh, Jeremy and his exclusion, the argument that was made was that he might be a drag on us at the next election. Something similar has just been made about Jeremy, Jamie Driscoll. But this is the man who took us within 2,000 votes. 2,000 votes for winning a general election. And then the next time round, when we weren't successful, he did the right thing and he stepped aside. But after 40 years in Parliament, after 40 years of being a decent and good Labour MP, the idea is that we can't allow this former leader to stand in case it costs us a couple of votes. I think cozying up to the Barclays and the Murdochs and the others of this world that I don't really like to talk to or about is a far more of a drag on the party. We need the people that appeal to the young people that are going to vote. We need the people that appeal to a cross-section of the party. And we should be that party that is a broad church. We should recognise all views and all members should have the right to decide who represents them in any role, whether it be a mayoral role, whether it be an MP or elsewhere. And what we're further seeing is where traditionally trade unions, when they nominate or endorse a candidate, at least get, at least get longlisted. The number of people that had several endorsements, up to six trade unions that are affiliated to the party, endorsed them, are not making the longlists. This is before the due diligence takes place. So why is that happening? Why is there this change? Now, I'm rather old-fashioned in some ways. I believe, right, that the Labour Party is the political wing of the trade union movement that created it. 
the voice of the people that created it, whether you, whatever sector you come from, for whatever you do. And also then you're the voice of all the others that can't speak for yourselves. And at a time where I saw this week where only several of the Labour laws or some of the Labour laws voted against a protest bill. How can you be a Labour Party member and not believe that people have a right to strike, not believe that people have a right to protest and not believe people have got a right to stand up for all the things that are currently wrong in this country? That is not the Labour Party that we want or we need. And that is not a democratic Labour Party leading from the front. So we need to get back to our roots. We need to get back to the ethos that created us. We need to be firm about where we are. And I look around and there's an awful lot of people spend an awful lot of time drafting motions. Drafting motions then then debated and fought or over and then become the policy of the party. Only to see unilateral pledges being made, pledges that haven't yet become the policy of the party or haven't been discussed, and then all of a sudden the same pledge has been cast aside very, very quickly. What sort of party are we if we can't be true to our word at any level of what we do? If we can't support striking workers at a time when virtually everybody's involved in some sort of action, I'm not sure who we support and how we do it. The idea that we can't stand by the NHS and nurses on the picket lines, the idea that we can't stand by the posties that kept our communities going during COVID, the idea that we can't stand with railway workers who've been out for 14 months because they haven't had a pay rise for four years but did the right thing during COVID frightens me. The idea that we're not supporting the educational unions in the way in which we should. The idea, because I know from the MPs that I talk to, they want to do that. I know from the people that I know talk to in the party, they're fully supportive of everybody right, doing something across the living crisis. Now, if we are going to look after the people that are looked after us, then we get the votes of their families, we get the votes of their kids and their grandchildren, and we engage them in a way because we're going to change their world and we're going to make it better. So for that level of engagement to take place, the two offers that we need to make to people is we will select and give you the people that you want to represent you in Parliament and elsewhere. And we will give you the right to make the policies that we will try and achieve as an aspirational party, right, where it takes us one year, five years, 10 years or 20 years to change the world to make it better, right, if you give us the chance to do so. And I think at this moment in time, that's a return to the democracy we need. That's a return to the trade union link we need. And that's a return to the future that we need. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Mick. Um, thank you for all that you do in our trade unions and on the NEC. So we've had a com- number of comments um, and suggestions come in on the Zoom. So Phil says, Mo comrades are subject to anti-democratic blockings like Jamie Driscoll and Greg Marshall um, and stitched up like we've seen with Beth Winter. Can we collectivise these struggles and challenge the leadership more effectively? Um, David from Mid Wales is a member of Doctors in Unite and says, worried some recent Labour decisions are putting people off um, so close to a general election. And we've also had lots of members sending their solidarity. Um, Mick, you've got compliments on your T-shirt as well. And someone would like to know where you got it. (laughs) Thank you, sir, from Website in America. (laughs) Thank you very much. Our next speaker is someone who needs very little introduction and has been a stalwart of the Labour left. We're really pleased to have Simon Fletcher join us today. I'm also a fan of Mick's t-shirt. I want the link, uh, Mick, once we finish the meeting. Um, uh, Thanks to the chair and thanks to the uh, comrades for inviting me. Um, I'm a member in the northeast of England, so I know how, uh, from personal experience, how 
grim the whole process of of the northeast mayor um selection has been um so just to start with that i mean i think that the exclusion of jamie driscoll is the most high profile exclusion of a candidate for a selection other than the case of jeremy corbyn and it has consequently attracted huge national and local news coverage uh, just just imagine for a minute joe biden's office sitting around determining who is allowed to stand in mayoral contests all over the united states of america it's completely ridiculous when you think about it, and it undermines the very point of devolution. So in terms of the sort of issues we're under discussion, I think, you know, although the systematic blocking of candidate is, candidates is aimed against the Labour left, it is also very much about fixing selections for favoured candidates. So significant forces significantly beyond the campaign group left are being hit by the exclusions. And that also means many candidates supported by the trade union movement, as Mick has just referred to, are unable to get onto long lists and short lists. And that is why it's very welcome this event tonight involves the connected issues of Labour Party democracy, members' rights and the union link. The key thing in all of this is that long-established norms of the party are being torn up. The party's democratic norms were themselves built on Labour movement norms inherited from the trade unions and the socialist bodies that formed the Labour Party. Every Democrat, not just the left, has an interest in pushing back against the erosion of these norms. Or to put it the other way around, not to push back seeds the ground to machine politics and drags the whole position down. When we view the exclusion of candidates from Labour Party selections, I think there are broadly three ways to look at them. One, some people who are a minority within the party support each exclusion of every single candidate in all circumstances within a framework of saying that they that it proves that Keir Starmer is making the Labour Party electable. Supporters of this view seek to impose the terms of how uh, the exclusions are made, not through open explanations in transparent and accountable party bodies, but in briefings to the media or allies in the party. Secondly, a larger body of opinion takes each case individually and judges it on specific arguments. But these are often based on lines that have been briefed out by the machine, i.e. that they've determined the framework uh, and within the framework of the restrictive procedures that as they currently stand. The problem with this approach is that it tends not to attempt to place these developments with any theory about what's happening or their place in any historical framework or any sense of a process that is unfolding. In reality, the big shift against members' rights has happened in the last two years since the parliamentary selections got underway. And what we are seeing includes candidates with broad Labour movement support blocked from standing for parliamentary selections with the effective imposition of shortlists, suspension or expulsion based upon retrospective application of prescribed groupings or publications, numerous council candidates blocked from seeking reselection, and ignoring conference policy decisions such as support for inflation, inflation proofing the public sector pay. And that's what I mean by the erosion of democratic norms. Under the present NEC, the central party has granted itself new powers to decide in advance who is permitted to stand for selection to be an MP, and they're being completely abused. Multiple for, I just want to say, multiple former leaders of the Labour Party and leading figures in the party in the past uh, would never have made it into Parliament in the first place if these rules had applied in the past. To take some recent cases, and one of these was alluded to just now. Brockstow, Labour councillor Greg Marshall was barred from contesting the Labour selection. He was backed by eight unions. He had attracted broad political support from Labour parliamentarians, by no means only on the left. 
Bolton North East, the chair of the North West Party, Lee Drennan, was blocked from standing, although he had the support of Unite, GMB, Unison and CWU. Milton Keynes North, Lauren Townsend, a local council cabinet member, was endorsed by several trade unions, including ASLEF, the FPU, CWU, Unison and TSSA. She was blocked. Now, a latest high-profile example is the mayoral selection for the whole of the northeast of England, and so on. I said there were three approaches. A third approach is to view the exclusions and the impositions in terms of the overall line of march, i.e. where these stand within the history and the direction of the Labour movement, where this is taking us and what the overall implications are, not only for the party as a whole, but in relation to the wider movement and politics more generally. By approaching it on this basis, we're able to take a step back and look at the full picture. So I think the process itself has to be opposed and alliances need to be built to overturn it. It's especially important to have Mick Whelan here because the unions are central to this debate. The Labour Party was established to ensure that candidates backed by the trade union movement could be elected into Parliament. But candidates backed by the unions are now repeatedly blocked. So the opposition to machine politics has to involve an alliance between the left, all those who wish to protect members' rights, and the trade union movement. Why does all this matter? It's not some sort of niche internal party thing, I think. Um, And there's a number of reasons, but I want to zero in on just one before I finish. In a recent Politics Home uh, podcast, in a discussion with the journalist Michael Crick, NEC member Luke Akehurst elaborated on the uh, thinking behind the due diligence panels of the NEC, which is the panel that's been excluded, panel process that's been excluding candidates. The key point setting out the vetting ethos, as articulated in this interview, is as follows. He says, if we're in a very tight parliament, a hung parliament situation, or a very narrow Labour majority in the next election, I don't want to allow people to become Labour MPs that effectively are not solid votes for the Labour Party. They've got an agenda that's about, you know, damaging Keir Starmer and his leadership or about, you know, constantly voting against us. And he precedes that point by saying factors include previous behaviour as a politician and including possibly if applicants have been publicly disrespectful of the current leadership and done it not in a polite way, but in a damaging and disruptive way. This, of course, is a highly subjective uh, political judgment and goes on to to raise whether other things include whether they have a record of breaking the whip or an implication that they might break the whip. All of these constitute very broad and subjective criteria. And what is being set out here quite openly is an intention to predetermine the composition of the next parliament, to insulate it from opinion that on some matters may differ at some point from that of the party leadership. And that has real consequences. The most famous occasion during which Labour MPs uh, rebelled under the Tony Blair government was on Iraq. It was an important debate. It was essential this debate was reflected within the Parliamentary Labour Party itself. And by the way, of course, the rebels were 100% right and the government was wrong. And to be clear, if this same ethos had prevailed in the past, it would have reduced the presence of legitimate concerns over the build-up to war in 2003. A range of opinions in the PLP strengthens it and not weakens it, and is it healthy for politics? So um, just some sort of concluding points. First of all, um, take the actions mentioned uh, just just before um, some of these, some of these um, contributions um, uh, set out by Matt. I would favour closer cooperation and coming together of democratic forces in the party and the Labour movement, or some form of wider coalition to agree a framework for pushing back 
not only immediately, but through into the next parliament to correct the, the abrogation of the party's norms. I haven't really been able to go into how this stuff connects, um, apart from the historic example of Iraq, how this stuff connects to uh, policy and you know some of the recent things that we've seen around the fiscal rule, the, spent, the spending on the green, the twenty-eight billion pounds spending on the green prosperity plan, or the shift to position on childcare. But I think these things are, you know, uh, internal party democracy is not disconnected from those wider connections, those wider issues, and we should perhaps talk about it um, further. I mean, just to conclude, each candidate exclusion advances machine, the machine politics of command and control, and each time this is pushed back, advances a more pluralist position based on the Labour movement's democratic norms. And I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Simon. You might have seen in the chat that we have the Let Members Decide petition, um, and we would encourage as many people on the call to sign it, and if you've already signed it, to please share it. Our next speaker is Rachel Garnham from the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, um, who have long been working to maintain democracy and centre the voice of members in the Labour Party. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks, Nabila, and um, thanks to Arise for um, inviting me and putting on this brilliant festival. Um, previously been involved in the discussions on Sylvia Pankhurst and on Ireland, and um, I feel this is a slightly more negative discussion, unfortunately, but um, it does show that there's uh, aspects of hope out there. Um, so um, I bring with me as co-chair of the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, a 50 year legacy of trying to get uh, Labour representatives who are the, the choice of local members and a political programme that represents the agreed policy of annual conference as decided by individual members and trade unions. Um, hasten to add I have not been involved for all those 50 years um, but this is, has never been easy and we are in a better place than we were 50 years ago when CLPD was founded and Labour Party democracy is not dead yet despite the best efforts of the current leadership to trash it. Um, this is a long battle and, and getting the establishment to give power to ordinary people is never easy. So um, I wanted to make three points I've always made the argument that members are best placed to decide who represents them. That's uh, Previous speakers have gone into this a bit. I mean, I think it's basic common sense that we know who our communities will warm to, who has the qualities needed to succeed in our areas and who share our priorities for local communities. Of course, Jamie is the, the most recent high profile victim of, of headquarters control freakery. But um, I'm currently experiencing this firsthand in my own CLP, where we have a, a by-election um, with the supposed stepping down of Nadine Dorries if she ever disappears. Um, not that she ever appears in mid-beds, but um, it appears that we will have to choose between just two candidates imported from London. We don't know. No one's told us, <laughs> but two have been in touch um, with apparently a favourite favoured son. But we have very decent local candidates, not all of whom I see eye to eye politically with, but they've been excluded too. Um, and it's depressing because um, in a by-election you want to put up a fight against the Tories and the Lib Dems. But how can you put up the best fight if you have a hand picked outsider? Um, it proves to me that factionalism matters far more than actually winning elections. They, the Starmerites claim to be the election winners. They care very little, it seems, about winning elections. Um, and needless to say, the rulebook has not been followed in terms of having a CLP uh, majority on the shortlisting panel. 
Um, of course, it's much worse in Jamie's situation, as he says, because there is so much at stake. You have someone as mayor who has a programme and a framework for desperately needed transformational change, um, or you can have the opposite. So in Islington North, in Mid-Bedfordshire, in the North East Merrill region, in Broxtow, Milton Keynes North, Peterborough, Stroud, so many places, Kensington, you know, Labour would do better if members were allowed to decide. And I do urge people to keep up the fight for Jamie, for Jeremy, for Diane to have the whip restored. And, um, you know, these are the Labour candidates we need. Um, secondly, I want to talk about policy. This is an ongoing fight for what the next Labour government will do in office. And I genuinely believe there is this is still in flux and there is a, a fight to be had. Um, the more we campaign inside and outside the Labour Party for the policies that we desperately need to transform Britain, the more chance we have of having an impact. There are still some good things in Labour's programme. There were some good things implemented by the Blair Brown government of 97, but none of them come without a fight. And in particular, a fight by the unions backed up by grassroots members. And that's what need, is needed now when only, you know, this, as has been mentioned before this week, Reeves, who appears to be economically illiterate, despite everything that's said about her, um, has rolled back pledges on investment in green infrastructure and childcare, um, two areas which are essential to growing the economy. Um, and it beggars belief, really, where Streeting is insistent that the private sector provides solutions to the crisis in the NHS when what is needed is proper investment, an end to privatisation and a decent pay rise for NHS workers. And as has previously been said, while well, Labour is rightly on the attack about water companies under investment causing sewage to be pumped into our waterways, the front bench is ideologically opposed to the obvious and necessary solution of renationalisation. So we're all fighting on this. Some of us were elected on a grassroots platform to the National Policy Forum, and we're doing our best to use that process process we have available to advocate for conference policy. So we've submitted a whole host of amendments to the draft document to strengthen Labour's policies on issues such as ending uh, private sector involvement in the NHS, reversing academisation of schools, ending tuition fees, building more council housing, repealing regressive Tory legislation on migration and asylum rights. And while the odds are stacked against us in this deeply undemocratic process, we can but try to ensure that common sense prevails on these key policies. So enabling members individually and collectively through trade unions and socialist societies to select candidates and make policy is not just right in principle and in the rule book, um, it's actually essential to a healthy, vibrant and inspiring party. How can we go out on the doorstep and... Um, advocate for a party that excludes people and that doesn't doesn't put forward a platform that people can recognize as as at a, at a making real change to their lives you know it, democracy in the party ensures we draw on the strengths and knowledge of hundreds of thousands of people who are in touch with the hopes needs and concerns of their communities it should be an enormous strength and not the millstone it, it apparently appears to be for starmer and, and without democracy, the party becomes sclerotic, out of touch and actually destined in the end to lose. So um, I'm going to finish with what I hope are some principles for a positive way forward. Um, firstly, be patient. As I said earlier, CLPD has been around for 50 years. When it was founded, there were no trigger ballots and the leader was elected by MPs. We have made progress. We have also been pushed back, um, but not as far back as we could be. And also think that things are so bad that and care is so awful that the situation really can't last forever but that doesn't mean we be we need to be patient about campaigning for the things we want and 
um, advocating for the candidates we need. Um, secondly, be inclusive and reach out. As under Blair in particular and Brown and Miliband too, there are thousands of members who may not call themselves socialists and may not fight for the transformative policies we believe in, but they want the opportunity to democratically select their own candidates for election. They'd like their local candidates and they want Labour to put forward a policy programme that is not conservative and will genuinely make a difference to people's lives and provide hope for the future. We need to build alliances with these members in our CLPs, in our local government committees, in our regions, at annual conference, at women's conference. I do think the sort of right wing of the party is, is quite a, a small number of, of very backward thinkers, and we need to um, work with whoever agrees with us on party democracy. And we need to be prepared to fight further attacks. The trade unions are a huge block at the moment on pure neoliberal policy from Reeves and the like. And there is no doubt Starmer will come for the unions too, as Blair tried to. And we must be prepared to defend that link and fight using all the tools and platforms we have available, including in the Labour Party, not walking away from that fight, however difficult it is. And some very concrete things that you can do before the deadline of 23rd of June is um, get your delegates to Labour Party conference, get your rule changes and your nominations in for left candidates. The left needs to be present, contesting these elections, putting forward a positive agenda and not running away. So please do visit the CLPD website, join the campaign for Labour Party democracy and um, keep in touch if you'd like to be more involved. And thank you. I'll finish that. Thank you very much, Rachel. Our final speaker tonight is John Trickett MP. John has consistently spoken about the need for democracy in the party. And as Nick Whelan also mentioned, um, John has reminded us of our roots in the trade union movement, which is what fundamentally sets us apart from other political parties. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from you, John. Nabila, thank you very much. To everybody who's here tonight, thank you for coming and to the other speakers. Um, very, very good, I think, quality. Now, I was given eight minutes, so I'm going to compress some really big arguments into as tight a frame as I possibly can. But let me just start by reflecting on, um, you know, this isn't simply about the left, is it? It's about people who might say that the soft left or centre. We've heard a list and we've seen what's happened. Mortifying, really, that some people wouldn't really describe themselves on the left who have been taken out. It's local government, it's members of parliament, you know, it's all layers of the party, officers of constituencies and branches, um, you know, activists up and down the country. And let's just be clear, they're after you. They seem to be against activists, uh, not just the left. But anyway, look, let, let me just come to the points I wanted to make. I've written two quite uh, comprehensive articles, by the way, in Tribune and the Morning Star in the last few days. So quite a lot of the detail is in there. Please refer to them if you're interested in what, what I've been saying. Well, look, the first thing to say is the country's in, in a complete uh, mess, sleaze, corruption, poverty, public service on a knife edge, inflation rampant, cost of living crisis and so on. The people have fallen out with the Tories, big time. Should we assume, though, that Sunak will simply gift the next election to Labour, that we can just sit back and wait for it to come? I don't think so. You can never underestimate the determination the Tories to hold on to power. And with their multi-million pound donors, the overwhelmingly right-wing media, we can't count on the, the Tories to hand us the 
keys to number 10. And in any case, no opposition should wish to win simply by default because of the, enemies, the, the errors of the government. We need to reassure voters, of course we do, that we will repair the damage, but we need to inspire with a fresh vision for our country. So, which way forward for Labour? And the first thing is, I think, we need to have some honesty about our defeat in 2019. I want to just refer to that because it explains a lot of what's happening today. The narrative we've been told it was our left-wing policies which lost us the election and that therefore the left must be silenced because we're an electoral handicap. That's the argument that's being made. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? We all know that. But I think we've got to make this argument loud and clear. Think back to 2017. We made progress in building a platform for a second election, which would have led us to victory, were it not for a number of factors, but in 20, which I'll come to. But in 2017, our policies were radical. I don't think they were completely socialist, but they were certainly social democratic. And this is a central point I want to make. In 2017, we accepted the result, the democratic result of the Brexit referendum, whether or not you personally agreed with it. That was our position. And we almost got there, not quite, but as I say, we'd built a platform strong enough for us to win a second election. Now, so what changed between 2017 and 2019? Well, quite a few things. We certainly made a few mistakes. I was part of the inner team working with Jeremy. Some of our mistakes were grievous, but none of them were necessarily fatal to our election prospects. And show me any group of people who never made a mistake. You won't find any. You won't find any of them. But what had changed between 27 and, nine, and 2019, above all, was our position on the EU. And there were senior members. I sat with them week after week after week on Tuesday mornings in the Shadow Cabinet and in the Brexit subcommittee, those members whose names we know, who are now in high place, we're not going to name them because we mustn't be disrespectful, <laughs> but we know we're talking about, swore that they would never, ever, ever accept Brexit. Of course, there were others of us, and it's on record in my case, and others too, who argued for a different approach to the results of the referendum. But the point is that 2019 was an election which was largely fought around the single issue of how we relate to Brexit. Remember Boris and uh, the, uh, the campaign, we, were, we had the second referendum. <clears throat> now, you'll see the point I'm going to make in a minute. I had produced a paper in September um, of 2019, which I gave to uh, Jeremy's office. It showed that there were 51 Labour seats which were in danger if we didn't change our position on Brexit. But it was quite hard because, as I've just said, there were some very big players inside that shadow cabinet who were dead against doing anything in relation to that. Well, look, I predicted there were 51 Labour seats which were in danger. We lost 60 in total, but 49 of them were on my list. And they were seats which were imperiled because they had voted Labour, but then they'd voted for Brexit. And now the very people, the authors of that politics, are trying to rewrite history and somehow blame the left for the defeat in 2019. And they've built an intolerant practice on the basis of what is a clearly faulty analysis. How can it be otherwise when you've, I've just given you the figures, the vast majority of seats we lost in that devastating election 
were seats which fell out with us because of our Brexit position. And whichever side of the argument each one of you came on, um, it is important that we analyse carefully what happened in 2019 so we can resist the central proposition that it was the left policies themselves which damaged the, our, our prospects. Now, all of this has been used partly, I think, as an excuse to buy the leaders in the Labour Party and in the NEC and in, in head office to make a full-fledged assault on democracy and pluralism in our party. That's how it's been explained and justified. Leading right-wingers are now saying we need iron discipline around the leadership. But it's a shame that those very same people who now say we've all got to get around the leadership uh, and justifying the clampdown clamp down in doing so were the same people who launched the chicken coup against the then leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. It looks like one rule, uh, one rule for some and one rule for others. But sadly, it is the case. It's a tragic blunder to act on the base that somehow it was the left alone or even largely, who were culpable for the 2019 result. And it's an even bigger mistake to imagine that the absence of discussion and debate is appropriate now. Maybe, actually, if you think about it, if we'd listened more attentively in the years between 2017 and 2019, what was happening, what became the red wall seats? And I was very vocal in trying to give expression. I represent a red wall seat. And many of us were too. But if, if they'd listened more attentively, and allowed debate to take place, maybe we would have avoided those incorrect decisions and 2019 would have been a very different place. So now look, is the assault on our democratic pluralistic traditions going to help us in the medium to longer term now that we are where we are? And I think not. And I think I'm going to give you five quick reasons why I think this is the wrong course of action. Because you've heard a lot of the detail in the other speakers' uh, uh, propositions. First, no individual or group has a monopoly of wisdom. That applied to us when we were in the leadership, and it certainly applies to the current leadership. It's better that arguments are tested in a wider debate. Take, and that's what democracies and pluralism in the party. Take, for example, recent announcements in the last few days all be made because of our new fiscal position, which was never debated with any of us. <clears throat> but we have dropped the promise of universal childcare. We've, um, uh, we've postponed, uh, maybe for a long time, the green renewal, and so on and so forth. All of these have real implications for the electorate. If we want to build a majority, you have to have these people voting for you. But we've just dropped them on the basis of a fiscal envelope, which has never been debated itself. Secondly, we live in a very complicated society, lots of contested points of view, but it's wrong to imagine that the whole population, and this is what some people in the leadership seem to imagine, that the whole population somehow inhabits a place to the right and the centre right of political debate. It simply isn't true. We showed that in 2017. A significant section of voters, millions in fact, are liberal-minded and on the left. Our policies appeal to them. And the more the leadership abandons those policies, the more it places the party at great risk of losing what will be a vital selection section of the coalition of voters. Third, tens of thousands of our members have felt unwanted or rejected. Some were expelled, a huge number more are left. But in a pre-election period, which is where we now are, and join an election, don't we need active members to get out? But active members inspired 
by a big vision rather than count by threats of uh, disciplinary action. Four, the decision to instruct front benches not to attend picket lines was never explained. It was just simply announced from on high. But don't we need active trade unionists to persuade their workmates to join the big movement to change whenever the election comes? And don't we, by the way, need the trade union leaders and all the trade unions themselves to feel a part of the Labour family, which embraces their hopes and aspirations too for their organisations? And fifth and final point, members need to be free to choose their elected representatives. Not to do so implies that there is a very small group at the central power who has all of the wisdom to decide where every single village, town, city, region in our massively heterogeneous country uh, needs. They have the wisdom to decide who the candidates should be rather than local people. But don't we need a heterogeneous PLP? Don't we need a PLP that represents different demographic characteristics, the North, the South, women, men, uh, peoples uh, with different sexuality, so on and so forth? But it's unlikely, and I've been told this by somebody quite senior, that a person from my background, remember I'm a socialist plumber, a person from my background would ever again get into parliament. A homogeneous PLP would simply not reflect the life, the diversity, the vitality of a great country like ours. And yet somehow half a dozen people or less are deciding who should be our mayors, our MPs, our councillors. So tonight can be and ought to be the moment when we make a stand or start to make a stand. The first phase of this is to tell the truth, as I've tried to do, to defend our record in a non-confrontational way, but insist on our principles, because we are as much a part of the Labour family as anybody else. We can't com be confident, by the way, that our analysis of late-stage capitalism in Britain is the correct one and that we need to break with neoliberalism if we want a successful Labour government. Tonight, we planted our flag. It's a deep red flag. There are many of us. We should be confident of that. We should be confident of our politics, our principles, and our capacity to organise in the movement. Let's make sure we do it. And thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us, John, um, and for your inspiring words as ever. Um, and thank you to everyone for participating at tonight's event and this brilliant ongoing festival of ideas, which runs right through to the 20th of June. If you're able to buy a ticket for the whole festival, please do so, because without your support, we just wouldn't be able to host these very vital discussions. So for your information, the next Arise events include a major discussion on Latin America next Monday and an important session with Richard Bergen MP on socialist economics next Wednesday. As we've heard from all our wonderful speakers today, a better socialist future is possible. We have a world to win, so let's go on together and do it. Thank you for joining us.